The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, church. I want to start off by saying a big thank you. It has been an unusual year, to say the least. And I want to say thank you for the way you have loved each other just by simply putting on a mask. I know there are a lot of different views about masks and what those things mean. Here's what I think. I hate wearing the mask, but I love you more. And so if that meant I could be with you on Sunday morning, that's what I was willing to do. So as we move from uh, recommended mask wearing to next week, it's going to be optional, right? We're kind of moving in that direction. I know many of us are, are vaccinated and feeling more comfortable. Uh, we're moving in that direction as the general population is moving in that direction. If you have any questions or concerns, please raise those with us. We're journeying along and we want to journey along with each of you and be considerate and merciful and safe and loving and kind and we'll figure it out together. But just a reminder that that's the, the, way, the direction that we're moving in. I want to welcome, if you are a visitor here, we want to welcome you. The Springs, uh, we are a people that are seeking to be transformed in the image of Christ so that people will find their way back to God. And we do that in three ways. The first way is that we gather in the name of the Father like we do here and that we grow. The second way is that we grow into his image. And third is that we go by the power of his Holy Spirit. This year... We are in a season of grow. We are highlighting and focusing on that mission of growing. And so uh, a little preview, this summer, uh, we're going to do a guest series of uh, guest speakers, a series of guest speakers. We usually do this every summer. We didn't do it last summer because of COVID. We're going to get back to that. This summer series is called Practices of Love, and we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines. As we talk about growing into the image of Christ, practices like prayer, practices like solitude and fellowship. We're going to have guests come in that are going to share with us and teach us and learn together with us practices that help us to grow into the image of Christ. So that will not begin next week, but the following week, beginning in June, and that will go in June and July. But right now, our sermon series is in the Gospel of Mark, following Jesus. So if you'll turn with me to Mark 15, beginning of verse 33. The word of the Lord, it says this. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three... In the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus. He is your unequivocal yes to us. He is your gift to us. And when we look at his life and his death, and we have eyes to see. When we look at his life and his suffering and his death, may we have ears to hear. When we look at his life and his suffering and his death, may we have bodies that follow. And God, today, this morning, in the presence of your word, Jesus, in the presence of his body, these people, I ask for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of your gift to us, the one whom we call the way, that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love movies that have a surprise ending. I asked my wife, I said, hey, what's, what's the one movie that you can think of that has like the biggest twist at the end or the biggest surprise ending? And she says, oh, there's no question about it. It's The Sixth Sense. Am I right? Raise your hand if you've seen The Sixth Sense. All right, hey, yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. Because my wife said, okay, if you're gonna talk about this, you're gonna have to give them a spoiler alert. So, spoiler alert. And then you're gonna have to tell them that you're sorry for spoiling the movie. For those that haven't seen it, I was like, me tell them I'm sorry? This movie's over 20 years old. If they haven't seen it by now, they should be apologizing to me. That's what I think. Am I right? So, spoiler alert, but this movie is 20 years old. So, if you're upset, it's your fault. All right? Malcolm, who's played by Bruce Willis, as you see in the picture, is a child psychologist in this movie. And it opens up the movie at the, the beginning. He encounters, he has an encounter with an old patient who's disgruntled. And they end up having an altercation in his house, and he gets shot, and then the patient turns the gun on himself. Well, the movie jumps to about a year later, and Malcolm, or Bruce Willis, he finds himself estranged from his wife because she's become distant and cold towards him. So Malcolm dives into his work. He's a child psychologist. He dives into his work, and he's especially working with a nine-year-old boy named Cole. And at one point, Cole, this very famous line from The Sixth Sense, Cole says... I see dead people. And he goes on to say this, but they don't know they're dead. In fact, they only see what they want to see. Malcolm doesn't believe Cole. He thinks he has some 
trauma or some other thing going on in his life, and he doesn't believe that he really sees dead people. But after he hears some evidence of this, he kind of turns a corner, and he begins to believe that Cole is really telling the truth, that he really does see dead people. So Malcolm works with Cole, and they end up saving someone's life because he encounters a girl who had died, and it becomes a warning that saves her brothers and sisters from a similar fate. But the surprising twist, it comes actually at the end of the movie, that after he saved, helped save this person's life, he goes home to his estranged wife, and he finds her curled up on the couch, asleep, and what's playing on the television is their wedding video. And his wife is talking in her sleep, and he begins talking with her. And at some point in the conversation, she says in her sleep, she says, Malcolm, why did you leave me? And Malcolm gets choked up, and he says, I've never left you. I've always been right here. And then at that moment, he hears this cling and this piece of metal rolling on the ground. And he sees that it's his wedding band that his wife's been holding. In her sleep, she drops it, and it rolls out under his feet. And at that moment, Malcolm, Bruce Willis, realizes as he looks at his finger, and the ring is not on his finger, he realizes that he, in fact, has died. And the reason that Cole has been talking to him is because he's dead. I told you, spoiler alert, it's your fault that you haven't seen this movie. And it replays in his mind. He starts hearing Cole's voice. I see dead people, but they don't know they're dead. And he backs up. And he's kind of stunned because he realizes, in fact, he's dead. And then he hears Cole's voice. They only see what they want to see. And he realized, I haven't been looking for the right things. We typically don't read the Gospels and experience the Gospels the way that you experience the sixth sense for the first time. Do you remember that feeling? Raise your hand if you remember that feeling. Were you just not blown away? Okay, so most of us read and experience the Gospels in this way. Here's how I experienced the sixth sense. It was the year 1999, I think, is when the sixth sense came out. And I had a coworker that starts telling me about this movie. Well, I hadn't heard about this movie, the sixth sense. He goes, oh, it's amazing. And then, can you believe that at the end he discovers that he's dead? I was like, no, I, didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I didn't think much of it until like a year later. Yeah, I beat you. I, it took me a year to watch it, but I beat you. It took you like 22 years to watch it. Now, you're going to experience it like I experienced it. I start watching this movie, having kind of forgot that conversation. And within the first like 20 minutes, I go, <gasps> He ruined the movie for me. 
I know he's dead. I never got the chance to watch The Sixth Sense like you did. And I think that's how we read the Gospels. That's our experience. We've heard the ending before, right? We've heard it so many times, we come to expect, we go, oh yeah, I know what the ending's gonna be. I know what happens. I know what this means. We know what it means. At least we think we know what it means. In the words of Cole, sometimes we just see what we want to see. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus asked this central question. Who do you say that I am? And what we've said at the very beginning of Mark's gospel is this. I propose at the very beginning of this sermon series that this is the central question and this is why it matters. It matters who you say Jesus is because who you say Jesus is will determine how you follow. Or I've also said it this way. If you really want to know who you think Jesus is, look at your life. Don't just look at the songs you sing or what you confess. Look at your life. Because what we encounter in Mark's gospel is this, that Mark really wants you to know that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's a lot of mystery surrounding this. And in fact, there's a great secret that Jesus keeps telling demons and others, shh, be quiet. Because it's not just that he wants you to know what it, who, the, who Jesus is as the Son of God, he wants you to know what that actually means. So if you remember in chapters one through eight, there's lots of stories about people following Jesus. And what you discover soon is that people follow Jesus all the time. I mean, crowds of people follow Jesus. But what you also discover is that as they follow Jesus, they have no clue who he is. Who is this guy? They're astonished. They're amazed. They're bewildered. They don't understand. They don't get it. But what you also discover as you read through chapters 1 through 8 is there are lots of stories about demon possession, more than any other gospel, in fact. And what's interesting about these stories, they keep happening. They're bouncing back and forth between people who don't understand, right, and then demons, is that the demons, they know exactly who Jesus is. And they name him either Son of God or Son of the Most High, which is basically the same thing. They know exactly who Jesus is, and they say, I'm out. I can't follow. I'm not following that. Now, your temptation is this, Ben. Of course, demons. They're demons. Of course, they're not going to follow. Of course, they're going to say they're out. Resist that temptation. You're missing the point. The point is that they're not demons, so naturally they wouldn't follow. The point is this. Here's the question. What do the demons know that the people don't? What do the demons know about Jesus as Son of God Most High that makes them say, whoa, I don't, I don't think so. Now, the name Son of God has come up quite a bit in the Gospel of Mark. 
So Mark calls Jesus son of God. But remember, Mark's not in the story. Mark's telling the story. Uh, at Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son, right? God calls him. And in the transfiguration, he calls him my son. In fact, there's a point where he's standing, Jesus is standing before the officials, and they ask him the question, are you the son of God? So he doesn't name him son of God, but he asks him the question, and Jesus says, I am. Eventually, he says, I am. So you have all these references to son of God. The demons call Jesus son of God. God calls Jesus son of God. Jesus affirms that title. Peter comes close when he says, you are the Christ. But in fact, what is very interesting in Mark's gospel is that no human being names Jesus son of God. Not one. Until you get to chapter 15. It says this. At noon, darkness, it came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried on a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And then some ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. They said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then when this centurion guy, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said this, surely this man was the son of God. The only human being to recognize Jesus as the Son of God was the centurion, a pagan, which is a whole other sermon. Let me give you a hint to sometime we'll preach about this. The centurion is supposed to name Caesar Son of God. That's actually a title reserved for Caesar. Who sits on a throne in Rome. And this pagan centurion, who is very immune to suffering and death, he's seen this thousands of times. He turns and he says, when he saw how Jesus died, he says, this man is the son of God. I find it interesting that he says when he saw how he died. That's very intentional, I think, for Mark. In this sense that Mark, as we've heard, is about vision. There's a lot of stories in the Gospel of Mark, or at least they're emphasized, about vision. What we can see, what we can't see. And we talked about two of those stories. I talked about one, and Brett talked about the other, of the healing of blind men. Do you remember the first one? 
that was in chapter 8? Don't worry. I'll, I'll give you a summary of it. That Jesus heals this blind man, right? And he spits in his hands and he puts it on his eyes. And he says, what do you see? And he said, um, I, I see people, but they look like trees. We wonder, why did Jesus have to try twice? It's because Cole was right. People see what they want to see. When we look at Jesus, oftentimes our greatest temptation is to see what we want to see. To see Jesus either the only way we've ever seen him, or maybe even to see him in our own image. We've seen this movie before. We've seen this gospel movie before so many times, it's very hard for us to unsee it and see it again with new eyes. Just like it's hard for me to watch The Sixth Sense and have the experience you had. We can't unsee things. But maybe, let me use an example here to give us an idea that maybe help us to see something different. Because Mark is about vision, it's about seeing. So this is kind of a, 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 a simplistic example, but I hope it, you get the point. If I hold up my hand, the people sitting right here, they can only see maybe that I'm holding up three fingers. Now, you probably assume I'm holding up more, but I say, actually, how many fingers can you see that I'm holding up? One. There you go. There's one, right? Maybe two, maybe three. But how many fingers can you see? Five. So if I turn my hand to you, you can only see this side, one finger, or maybe two or three, but you can see all five. We've become so used to seeing the gospel from one particular perspective that every time we come to it now, we assume three fingers or one finger. But Mark, what I think he wants to do is he wants to slowly turn where now you can see something more deeply and more thoroughly about who Jesus is. For Mark, Jesus' death is not primarily about what God does for us. It is about what God shows us. It is primarily about revelation. It is not that Jesus died for our sins. That's not Mark's primary purpose here. His primary purpose is that in Jesus, God shows us what salvation looks like through his suffering and death. You know, Brett talked last week about this. He talked about the way 
and that the church was often called the way, and that the Gospel of Mark mentions this idea of the way quite a bit. And this is really, really important because for Mark's Gospel, salvation is not that Jesus died for your sins. Now, before you guys rush up to me and want to put me up on the cross with Jesus, Jesus did die for your sins. That is true. We sung about it this morning. We've confessed it. That is unequivocally true. But only seeing Jesus' death as for your sins is like looking at this side of my hand. And Mark says, I want to turn this a little bit. For Mark, the primary, Jesus' death is not primarily about Jesus dying for your sins. It is revelation. It is not salvation that Jesus dies for you. It is salvation as God reveals salvation to you. In other words, here's what salvation is according to Mark. Salvation is a way of life. Salvation is marked by discipleship. Here's what this looks like for Mark's gospel. In verse 15, 34, and 35, it says, And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Then he skip ahead. It says, Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. He doesn't demand that Elijah comes. I want you to see something here. That in the crucifixion of Jesus, he shows us the way of salvation is this. He did not come to be served by God or by Elijah or by anyone else. You know how we know this? He teaches earlier. You go to the next slide. He teaches earlier this. In, in Mark, go on to the next slide. In Mark 10, 43, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. You see in the very way of God that salvation exist in a way of life, and that life looks like servanthood. Salvation looks like servanthood. So my question is this. Who are you serving? If you're saved, who are you serving? Maybe a better question is this. Who are you not serving? Do you serve everyone? Do you serve even your enemies? Because this is what salvation looks like for Jesus. This is what the way of salvation looks like that he reveals is that he does not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then you go on to chapter 15, verse 36. 
says this. And someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff. And they offered it to Jesus to drink. But the implication of this story is when he's sitting there and they offer him the wine vinegar, which is supposed to deaden his senses. He's up there suffering and they often offer it to deaden their senses to relieve them of some anguish and suffering and pain. The implication or the implied what's happening here is that Jesus denies this. He doesn't take it. And it reminds us what Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 8, verse 34. He says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. Here's what servanthood looks like. It looks like self-denial. Do you practice self-denial? As a saved person, do you practice self-denial? Do you deny what you want? Do you not deny what you want for the sake of others? Do you not deny what you want? Do you have self-denial for what you want in your life for the sake of the relationships that you have? Do you deny yourself so that others will have life? Here's another question. What do you need to deny in your life? The question is this. Is your life marked by self-denial? Because this is God's way of salvation. And finally, in verse 37, it says this of chapter 15. It says, and with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. It's interesting that if you look just a few verses earlier, it said the crowds came by and those passed by hurled insults, shaking their head. And they said this, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourselves. And then the priest and the, the teacher of the law and the, the elders, they came and he said, they, they heaped more insults on him. And they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. And we see Jesus dying. And we remember what he said to his disciples in chapter 8, verse 35. Forever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Are you dying with Jesus? Are you dying daily to yourself, to your selfish ambitions? Are you, do you need to die to your pride? Do you need to die to your own sense that I have to secure my own life, either financially or socially, or you start naming the categories? What marks the way of salvation that is revealed in Jesus Christ is dying with Servanthood, self-denial, and dying with Jesus. Jesus asked us this question. Who do you say that I am?
Because who you say Jesus is will determine how you follow. Cole said it best. He said, I see dead people. And for Mark, he says this is through the centurion, I see Jesus as the son of God when he is suffering and dying. People see what they want to see. They see Jesus in the way that they want to see him. But the question that Mark asks of us is, can you see Jesus as the way? Can you see the way of salvation as servanthood? Can you see the way of salvation as self-denial? Can you see the way of salvation as dying with Jesus? Can you see salvation as a way of life? Can you see Jesus' way as salvation? Discipleship. It's following the way of Jesus. Servanthood, self-denial, and dying with Jesus. This is what salvation looks like. Can you see it? Let's stand. Let's sing together.